Well, I don't know if this is still true today, but sailors used to be considered superstitious. And so if you were in their shoes, uh, you probably wouldn't be much different. Their work out at sea was often unpredictable, and they were often in danger of losing their lives. And this could be because of weather or sickness or being attacked by other ships, maybe even pirates, I guess. Uh, But one of the ways uh, that they tried to stay safe was actually by tattooing their bodies. They thought that certain tattoos would give them good luck against their dangerous circumstances. And so one tattoo that was common uh, was a tattoo that they would get on their fingers and it would say, hold fast. Uh, And so if you've seen the Russell Crowe movie, Master and Commander, then you might remember the scene where one of the young shipmen sees these words tattooed on an older sailor's fingers. And this tattoo was a way of reminding the sailors to hold the lines fast when the ship was in bad weather so that they wouldn't be thrown off. And these words served as a special reminder to hold on and persevere during tough times. And so in our text this morning, the author of Hebrews is going to call us to hold fast to our confession. And so if you've kept up with Christian news lately, you've probably seen multiple notable Christian pastors and thought leaders renounce their faith. We've seen others that have been exposed for living lives that are contrary to what they've confessed. And they have, in the words of Hebrews, potentially not held fast to what they once confessed. And if we're not careful, we could end up in the same place. So what do you hold fast to in difficult circumstances? What do you hold on to when you feel like the pressures of the world are too much to bear? Do you hold on to the security of your job? Do you hold on to your identity as a good student? Do you hold on to the affection that your spouse has for you? Do you hold on to how you're perceived by those you work with or go to school with? Friends, none of those things will hold. If you grip those things with white-knuckled intensity, they'll break and you'll be carried away by the storm. And so you need to grip something that's unbreakable, something that won't slip out of your hands. You need to hold fast to a confession that is founded on a God who is unchanging and makes unchanging promises. And this is what the author of Hebrews is calling us to this morning. So if you have your Bibles, flip to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 14 through 16. So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of those black pew Bibles that's in front of you. Uh, you can actually keep that Bible if you don't have one. Uh, that's our gift to you. I went to a church where a pastor said that every week, that that's uh, our gift to you. So you can have that Bible if you don't have one. Uh, and if you're trying to find Hebrews and you've landed in Philemon, keep flipping to the right. It should be just a couple pages over. Uh, and if you've landed in James, start flipping to the left. The book of Hebrews should just be a couple pages away. So if you take notes, I want you to write this down. This is going to be my sermon in a sentence. And kids, if you have your little uh, note sheet, 
you can write this in that top box. Uh, but it says this. Because Jesus is our high priest, we can draw near to God when we're tempted. So one more time. Because Jesus is our high priest, we can draw near to God when we're tempted. And so first, in verse 14, we're going to see that we need to hold fast to our confession. So again, we need to hold fast to our confession. And then second, in verses 14 and 15, we'll see that we hold fast because Jesus is our high priest. And then third, we'll see in verse 16 that we hold fast by drawing near to God. So again, we need to hold fast to our confession. We hold fast because Jesus is our high priest. And we hold fast by drawing near to God. So again, in verse 14, we're going to see that we need to hold fast to our confession. So in verse 14, we're going to ask two questions. What does it mean to hold fast? And what is this confession that we're talking about? So first, what does it mean to hold fast? Look with me at the second half of verse 14. The author of Hebrews reminds his original audience and us to hold fast to our confession. And this isn't just a command in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we see it used both positively and negatively throughout the New Testament. We see it used negatively in Mark 7, 8. Jesus confronts the Pharisees' love for their own man-made rules when he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then Jesus also confronts the church in Pergamum in Revelation 2, 14 and 15. There are some in the church that have been holding on to the false teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Positively, though, uh, there are some in that same church that are said to hold fast to Jesus' name. And they don't deny their faith, even though they're in a very dark city. And so we also see it used positively in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, which says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And so the Apostle Paul in this letter is telling the church of Thessalonica to hold on to what he and the other apostles have taught them. And so we see in these passages that, uh, that we need to hold fast uh, to God's truth, not the truths of men. But most notably, uh, we see this phrase used a couple chapters later in our passage for this morning. We see this in Hebrews 6, 18 through 20. We read it earlier in the service. It says this, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And so when you think of this term, hold fast, you might think of a boat casting down an anchor. And so even though the wind and the waves try to move the boat, the anchor keeps the boat in place. And so like a boat, Christians have an anchor, and our anchor is our confession. Or better yet, our anchor is found in the one who our confession is about. And so I love the way that 
uh, pastor and hymn writer Matt Boswell puts this in his song, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. He says this, Christ the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle and it seems that night is won, deeper still than goes the anchor, though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. So brothers and sisters, our anchor is found in Jesus Christ. And he's the one that we cling to in all circumstances, not just the good ones, but the bad ones. And so is this the way that you think of Jesus? Do your circumstances cause you to doubt his promises? Does that sickness or does that life-dominating sin or pressure from the secular world make you want to jump ship, so to speak? Do you try to cling to lesser anchors that are unable to keep you safe from sin and doubt? And so, brothers and sisters, Jesus is our anchor. He's the one that we hold fast to. He's unchanging, and his promises are unchanging. So hold fast to Christ. But what do we confess about him? How do the scriptures talk about Jesus? Was he just a really good teacher? Or was he just a guy that loved people really well? We'll flip a couple pages to the left uh, to Hebrews chapter 1. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. It says this, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so while we don't have time this morning to look at every little detail in this passage, uh, here are a couple observations that help us understand what the author of Hebrew means uh, when he's talking about our confession. And so first we see that Jesus is God. More specifically, he's God the Son. And so this doesn't mean that he was created by God. No, he's eternally been God the Son. We know this because the text tells us in verse 3 that he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If God the Son is the exact imprint of God the Father's nature, then that means he shares in all of his Father's attributes. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's unchanging. He's incomprehensible. He's holy. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's ever-present. He's all-knowing. He's all-loving. And he's deserving of all glory and all honor and all worship alongside the Father and the Spirit. He has everything that God the Father has, yet he's distinctly God the Son. And this is the Son of God that we confess. He's our unchanging anchor who took on flesh. And so this leads us to our second observation. Jesus made purifications for sins. 
And so to do this, the Son of God took on flesh. This doesn't mean that he merely had a body. He's not just God's spirit in human body, our God in a bod, if you will. He took on a full humanity, heart, mind, soul, and body. And he has everything that you and I have, yet get this, but without sin. And so unlike us, he walked in perfect obedience to the Father. And unlike us, he never grumbled or complained. And unlike us, he never gave into temptation. And yet he's the one that our sins were laid upon. The God-man went to the cross and died. The life-giver gave up his life. The Lamb of God laid down his life as a sacrifice to purify us of our sins. But Jesus didn't stay dead, though. The Father raised him from the dead in an incorruptible body, which we'll one day have as well. Amen? He later ascended to his Father's right hand, where he now sits, interceding for us as our high priest, that he's praying for us. And so that brings us to our third observation. Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. And so this doesn't mean that He's far from us. He's present with us by His Spirit. And He'll one day return and we'll see Him. And He will judge both the living and the dead. And we'll reign with Him forever. And so brothers and sisters, this is the good news that we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts. This is the Jesus whom we call Lord. And this is our confession that we must hold fast to. It's what anchors us when temptations rise against us. When that life-dominating sin won't seem to go away. But if we're honest though, what we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts often seems inconsistent with our daily lives. When temptation hits, we often don't cast down our anchor. We think that we can endure temptation in our own strength without the help of God or other believers. So instead of looking to Christ for the good news of the gospel, we end up believing the lies of the serpent. So sometimes you might hear him say, did God really say that giving in to unrighteous anger is sin? It's probably okay if you give in to your irritability. Raise your voice a bit. Make a good sarcastic jab. Cut them down. It's what they deserve. Did God really say that indulging lustful thoughts is sin? No one will find out. You can just delete your search history. You've had a hard week at work. You deserve it. And did God really say not to steal? Just take a little money off the top. No one's going to know. Or did God really say not to bear false witness against your neighbor? It's okay if you embellish the truth a bit. She's been awful to you this week. Or did God really say not to covet? 
You deserve what they have. You should feel a little bitter. You've worked so much harder than them. Brothers and sisters, we're declared saints in Christ, yet we're also sinners. And the deceiver is and will come after you until you die or Christ returns. And he wants nothing more than to see you drowned. He wants to see you bloated and lifeless at the bottom of sin's sea. And so you might be in here this morning thinking that you're powerless to put sin to death. You feel like you'll never be able to walk in prolonged obedience to God. But thankfully, the deceiver's works are in vain. We're able to hold fast to our confession because we're held fast by Christ. And we're not powerless when temptation comes our way because we have Jesus. He's our great and sympathetic high priest. And so this brings us to our second point. Hold fast because Jesus is your high priest. So flip back to chapter 4 with me. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, we're going to see that Jesus is a great high priest. And then we'll see uh, that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest in verse 15. So look with me at verse 14. It says, Since then you have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And so if you need comfort this morning, look no further than the word have. It doesn't say you might have a great high priest or you partially have a great high priest. It says that you have a great high priest. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to Christians like us. They also confess with their mouths and believe in their hearts that Jesus is Lord. And they have him. They possess him. They hold on to him. And if you're in Christ, then this is true for you. So brothers and sisters, we have Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Have you thanked God for this lately? What do we have to grumble about if we have Jesus? So friend, there is no better cure for bitterness and grumbling than knowing that you have Jesus. So we see that those who are in Christ have a great high priest in Jesus. But what does that even mean? So look at verse 14. The text says that Jesus is a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And so this is saying that Jesus is unlike any other high priest. While the old high priests entered the earthly temple, Jesus enters the heavenly temple. And since Jesus has entered the heavenly temple to sit at the right hand of the Father, we now have access to the throne room. We can go where Jesus goes. And we can go there through Christ because he's empowered us by his Spirit. And we can bring our requests to the Father because Jesus is there. And so this is why Jesus is a greater high priest. 
He's the mega high priest, if you will. He's the Michael Jordan of high priests. He's the Beatles of high priests. He's the Citizen Kane of high priests. If any of you have actually seen Citizen Kane, I don't know if I have. It's supposed to be the greatest movie. But he's the greatest. And the author of Hebrews knew that his audience needed to hear this. Many of them were tempted to renounce Jesus as the Messiah and to turn back to the old forms of Judaism. And so this could have been due to social pressure from their friends, family, or co-workers. This could have been due to the threat of being imprisoned or put to death. And so they needed to be reminded that Jesus was a greater high priest. They needed to be reminded that what they had in the old forms of Judaism was just a shadow of what was and has come. And so we need to be reminded of this too. We're daily tempted to turn away from our confession and to live as if we don't have Jesus as our Lord. We're rich in Christ, yet we're tempted to act like beggars, pleading with the idols of this world to satisfy the desires of our heart. But thankfully, our high priest is sympathetic to our weakness. And so look with me at verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so, brothers and sisters, when we're tempted to think or respond contrary to our confession, we must remember that Jesus never did. Even though he was tempted in the ways that we are, he never once sinned. And so you might remember when Jesus was in the wilderness, Satan tried to tempt him three times, and each time Jesus held fast to what? The Word. He looked to God's Word. And every, every time Satan tried to attack, Jesus fought back with the Scriptures. And so you might also think of some of Jesus' last words while he was on the cross. Even amongst the worst of suffering, Jesus was obedient to the point of death. And so we see in Luke's account that Jesus quotes Psalm 31.5 when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, knowing that the verse goes on to say, You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And in Matthew's account, we see Jesus quote, Psalm 22.1, when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Knowing that the psalm goes on to say, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Jesus held fast to the promises of God, even in the face of temptation and death. So brothers and sisters, this is our high priest. He was faithful when you weren't faithful. He was obedient when you weren't obedient. And he clung to God's word when we settled for lesser words. 
Yet this doesn't cause him to hold his nose up at us. He doesn't look at us impatiently and say, why aren't you just like me yet? Just try harder. No, the text says that he isn't a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. He's able to sympathize with our weakness because he, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so, believer, do you think that Jesus is sympathetic towards you? Do you think that he's given up on helping you fight temptation? Do you think that he hates your guts? Let me tell you something. Those are lies from the pit of hell. Satan wants you to think that your king doesn't have compassion towards you, that he's just putting up with you, and that his discipline is cruel. And so you might remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul had a thorn in his flesh so that he wouldn't grow conceited. And he asked the Lord three times to take it away. Yet the Lord responded to him with these words. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Our Lord loves showing the sufficiency of his grace through our weaknesses. He doesn't always change our circumstances. But he can always provide enough grace for us to endure in faithfulness. So again, believer, hold fast to Christ's word and his promises. He's holding on to you and will provide all the grace that you need. He can work through your weakness. And so this brings us to our third and final point. We are to hold fast by drawing near to God. And so we've already established that God will provide the grace we need to persevere in holding fast to our confession. But how do we access this grace? How does God empower us by the Spirit to cling to Christ and His commands? Well, look with me at verse 16. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Notice that the text says nothing about bringing anything to the throne of grace. We don't draw near to God to earn mercy and grace. We draw near to God to receive mercy and grace. And it's like what we sing in Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We can come before our Holy Father, empty-handed, to receive mercy and grace with confidence, because we've been united to our High Priest. And since we're united to Christ, we've received His righteousness And we've been washed of our unrighteousness so we can draw near and approach the Father. And since we're united to Christ, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so, brothers and sisters, we can find grace in our time of need by drawing near to the throne of grace. We're never lacking in grace because we have Jesus as our high priest. 
We haven't earned Him. We've received Him. But if you're not a believer, let me first say that I'm really glad that you're here. And I'm not sure what brought you here or if you have any past experience with church. And I really want to give you good news. But first, I need to give you some bad news. If you don't recognize that Jesus is Lord, you can't draw near to God. You, like all of us, have rebelled against an infinitely holy God who's loving and just, and you are deserving of infinite wrath. And because you're a rebel, you can't bring your concerns before God the King. He won't hear you. And so you need a mediator who can go on your behalf before the king. The scripture says that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so as we said earlier, Jesus is the son of God who took on flesh. He lived the life that you and I couldn't live. He died the death that you and I deserved. And so if you turn from the pride that you're holding on to and cling to Christ, you'll be forgiven for every sin that you've committed, past, present, and future. And if you confess with your mouth that he's Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be given his righteousness. You'll be able to draw near to God for grace and mercy, and you'll know him and enjoy him forever. But if you reject him, then he'll reject you. And while you may boast in your own righteousness now, you won't boast on the day of the Lord. Instead, you'll be brought low, and you'll be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Jesus won't be your sympathetic high priest before the Father. Instead, he'll be your judge. And every wicked thought and every evil deed you've ever committed will be laid bare. And there will be no sympathy for you on that day. So friend, turn from your sin and turn to Christ. He's waiting to show you sympathy and compassion. And to give you grace and mercy. So turn to Christ. So what does it look like to draw near to God? How do we receive the grace or the power we need to persevere when tempted? And so here are three ways that we can draw near to God. First, draw near to God in prayer. Philippians 4, 6-7 tells us to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, not just sometimes, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This might be a startling verse for some of us. We've maybe been told that we just need to pray our sin away. We've heard that if we just pray more, then we won't be tempted. And that we won't sin anymore. And so because of this, some of us have neglected prayer. While we might not say this outwardly, our prayerlessness shows that we don't believe that God has the power to change us. But friend, this couldn't be farther from the truth. 
Prayer is one of the very means that God intends to accomplish His purposes in us. And so He uses Spirit-empowered prayer to give us the strength to hold fast to our confession. And so while we'll always be tempted on this side of eternity, we need to pray that God will provide us the grace to persevere when we're tempted. So we need to quit thinking of prayer like a fire hose. Prayer is more like an IV drip. It's slowly dripping and sustaining us. And so when you come to the Father in prayer, know that He's building patience in you, which is a fruit of the Spirit. You don't always get what you want when you want it, but we know that God will always give us what we need. And so ask for mercy. Ask for grace in your time of need. And you'll receive it. And this doesn't necessarily mean that you need to reorient your schedule, have an hour-long prayer session every day. It could mean that, but it doesn't necessarily have to look like that. And so we need to, what we do need to do, though, is we need to pray offensively and defensively. Not just in the moment when temptation strikes, but also before. So parents, if you're tempted to grow irritable with your kids, find time maybe in the morning before they wake up, before you go and see them and make breakfast for them, or maybe as you're making breakfast, to ask God for the strength to not be irritable. If you notice that you're still irritable in the moment, continue to pray. And so employers and employees, do the same thing. If you're tempted towards irritability or anger with your coworkers, pray before you get to work that day. Find time to pray during your lunch break. And so if you're tempted towards lust, pray for God to give you the strength to flee from situations that would cause you to sin. If you find yourself in that situation, continue to pray for strength and respond by fleeing. Ask others to pray for you. Get all the prayer that you can get. And so students, if you get anxious about grades and exams, take it to the Lord. Don't wait until exam day to start praying. Look at your syllabus and figure out, I'm probably going to be anxious around this time, and start praying. Actively fight against anxiety. And so all in all, these don't have to be long prayers. They can be quick, quick prayers that help reorient your thoughts and desires. And in these moments, though, we need to draw near to God in prayer to receive mercy and grace. And so second, we draw near to God through the Word. Like prayer, we need to remember that God's Word accomplishes His purposes and His timing. And so when we draw near to God through His Word... We don't expect aha moments every day. We trust that just like an IV, it will slowly drip and sustain us. But if we neglect God's word, we won't have a sword in the fight against temptation. Sin will devour you if you're not being fed by God's word on a regular basis. And so we, like Jesus, need to go to God's word when we're tempted. And so here are some passages that might be helpful to meditate on. When you're tempted to lust, remember Matthew 5, 27 through 30, which tells us to flee from this sin, whether that be in mind, in our minds or in action. 
when you're tempted towards sinful anger. Remember Psalm 103.8, which says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When you're tempted towards pride, remember Philippians 2, which points towards Christ's humility. And when you're tempted towards anxiety, remember what we just read, Philippians 4.6, which says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And when you're tempted towards slandering others, remember 1 Peter 2.21, which says, To put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. But regardless of what sin you're tempted towards, always remember 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And so if you're in Christ, then you're a new creation. While you once only desired to choose sin, God has given you new desires through His Spirit to choose obedience. And so look to God's Word for strength. And so lastly, draw near to God with others. And so Hebrews chapter 10, which is a couple chapters later, similarly tells us to draw near to God and to hold on to our confession. And so following this, the author of Hebrews tells us to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so while this might seem strange to us, God does things when we gather as a church. He's using the preaching, the praying, the singing, the reading, and the seeing of his word in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And he's using the word and all of those things to create and sustain us. And so he's doing something amazing when we come into his presence as a collective body. So don't grow bored with God. Stand amazed at his glory as you see his love and kindness for his people this morning. He's here and he's working. So as the word is preached when we gather, it then reverberates, if you will, into our daily lives. When we come together on Sunday morning, he's equipping us to hold fast and to help others hold fast. And so God has given us each other so that we can help one another walk in the light. We need this because we're often tempted to cling to other things, the things of this world, and not our heavenly confession. So believer, you need brothers and sisters to stir you up to love and good works. You need to be encouraged by other believers. But you can't do that very well if you neglect gathering with God's people, whether that be on Sunday mornings or, or maybe other times throughout the month. So if you've in some way become secluded from other believers, run to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Sin grows in the darkness when we're secluded from others. And we need other people to help us bring sin into the light and to put sin to death. And so if you've read or seen the Lord of the Rings, sorry, Missy, I'm talking about Lord of the Rings again, then you'll most likely uh, remember the scene where Frodo tries to give Gandalf the ring. This is early on in the book. And Frodo believes that 
He doesn't have what it takes to destroy the ring. And so after sternly rejecting Frodo's offer, Gandalf tells Frodo this, And now, said the wizard, turning back to Frodo, the decision lies with you, but I will always help you. And he laid his hand on Frodo's shoulder. I will help you bear this, long, this burden as long as it is your to bear. But we must do something soon. The enemy is moving. So friend, don't wait until the day of the Lord for your hidden sin to be brought into the light. Bring it into the light now. Do something soon. Your enemy is moving and he wants you to stay in the dark. So pray to God. Ask for repentance. Ask to kill any fear in you that's causing you to keep your sin in the dark. And let us help you bear your burden. And so if you're in Christ, then your sympathetic high priest wants to tangibly and visibly serve you through his people. And so we're his hands and feet. And so let Christ bear your burdens through his people. And so brothers and sisters, let's help one another hold fast to our confession. And we're going to do this until the day that our confession becomes sight. This is what we see in Jesus' words to the church in Philadelphia. In Revelation 3.11, he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So brothers and sisters, don't let go of the line. Don't let go of the anchor because Jesus is coming back. And to that end, we say, Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.